Welcome to today's Voices in Bioethics podcast. I'm Meryl Selig, a graduate of the Columbia University Master's in Bioethics program. I'm also a member of the Voices in Bioethics team. Today, we're delighted to speak with Carla Childers, who leads bioethics-based science and technology at Johnson & Johnson. Carla is also a Columbia bioethics alum, as well as a lecturer in the program. Carla, we're really delighted to have you share your experience and perspectives. Basically, it concerns research ethics, and most specifically, and it's so timely, ethics during times of disruption. This topic is especially relevant now with wars, conflicts, population migration, dramatic weather events, not to mention the recent pandemic, just happening worldwide and having impacts here, obviously, as well. So um, we'll get right into it. And the first question, which you've noted is a keen interest of yours, is how do we conduct research during times of disruption? First of all, Meryl, thank you so much. It's it's such a privilege to be talking with you and to be on the podcast. Um, I mean, if I think about how we conducted and I think about how I got interested in it, it's exactly as you talked about. We were, I think a lot of colleagues were reflecting on the fact that we kept talking about the pandemic and then it became the conflict in Ukraine and then it was climatic events and more geopolitical events. And we really started thinking about this more holistically about this idea idea of disruption, regardless of what the event is, and can we think of, to your point, how do we continue conducting research if we can? And if we can't continue conducting research, how do we take very good care of the obligations we have as research sponsors during those times of disruption? And so when I think about conducting research during those times, it's it's definitely an act of prioritization and thinking through as we'll get into, you know, some of the considerations. And specifically, I've been thinking about it very much from a bioethics perspective and as we think about the natural tensions that come up. Also, a lot of the conversations were, yes, these things keep coming up, but how do we think about future proofing? If we know disruptions are going to continue to happen, can we please at least learn from what's happened in the past, not keep repeating the same mistakes and do better and prepare better next time? Yeah, I think we're going to get into future proofing, which sounds exciting. And obviously, it's very important. And hopefully, we'll all as a society learn from our maybe not the best decisions as we look at them in hindsight. Perhaps you can describe what kinds of impacts happen to research when these different crises happen. And I imagine the responses are different depending upon the specific crisis. But if you want to get into that, um, you know, whether research continues or it stops or what happens, that's something that I don't think many of us know about what's going on. Yeah, and, it, and it's so complex, and I think you're absolutely right. It depends on the nature of the conflict, but we can kind of maybe think about it, like the immediate impact to participants. You have individuals who are in a clinical trial, presumably often patients, not just healthy volunteers. It can happen across the spectrum of research. So if you think of the most immediate impact, it's to continuity of care and how do you, things like how do you um, handle appointments that get canceled? What about drug supply and how do you make sure that patients continue to receive access? How do you have follow-up visits after medical device procedures? So there's that initial immediate impact to thinking about the participants themselves and how to mitigate the impacts on their actual care. 
we also saw, and this comes up in uh, across the spectrum of cases, is that the site personnel and the healthcare providers. So yes, the participants, but then the people who, how do they get to the clinical site? Was the bridge washed out? Was their hospital bombed? Um, maybe they aren't even allowed to go into a site. So there was also that second level of the the support structure and the people actually on the front lines of administering the research and even employees and resources in the countries where things are happening. And so, again, thinking about those types of even just ability to conduct and do they have power? Do they have water? Do they have different things like that of actual infrastructure? And interestingly, from a research sponsor perspective, depending on the nature of the disruption, it can be multifactorial. So in particular, during the pandemic, it hit all of our clinical trials. There were, everything was impacted. And even medical device clinical trials that require people to be in an operating theater when they could no longer go in for non-essential surgeries and things like that. Regional conflicts can be difficult because then you're looking at the number of clinical trials of the types in that region and can you get into them. But that ability to really think first about that first impact is the participants and and continuity of the research comes into it. We can talk more about that later, but it's definitely that first level. What is going to happen to the participants? How do we maintain continuity of care? How do we keep people safe in doing that and make good decisions? And how do we look at the holistic impact across all the clinical trials and make good equitable assessments and judgments? I just can't imagine how challenging that is in you know, dealing with the impact of whichever crisis it is. Obviously, again, the pandemic affected all of us. Right. And the complexity of coordinating, as you said, with both the site, whether it's a hospital or an academic institution, you know, whatever, pharmaceutical company, contacting patients, calming people down. You said, I think continuity really is key, but it's a word, but then making that happen and then dealing with such a really complicated network of partners and engaged people. Can you talk at all about who coordinates that? Maybe from the perspective of a pharmaceutical company, but one might apply that. Who's calling the shots and then sending out the orders to, if you will, the instructions to all the engaged parties? Yeah. And so one thing we did a lot was during disruptions, talk in a non-competitive way to other companies to try to figure out how they were doing things. And so most companies have a typical business continuity plan. There's some kind of crisis management team put in place. So there's internal infrastructure in a company that pulls in the right stakeholders who can take care of that. In general, it's going to be colleagues typically in things like clinical trial operations. Who are the individuals that can actually contact the local sites, make sure the sites have the appropriate information? So really leveraging those contacts and connections. A lot of emphasis on supply chain. How are supplies being distributed? Are they getting safely into the region? So there's a lot of supply chain implications and security questions about making sure that products aren't diverted inappropriately during these times of disruption, making sure that supplies get where they need. As you can imagine, on these teams, there's a heavy emphasis on compliance, quality, following legal requirements. So there's also that element of, as we do all these things, making sure that we're still adhering to the good practices we know we should for good clinical practice, safe execution of clinical trials. So there's a lot of that oversight and advising from that perspective as well. 
from a bioethics perspective, get pulled in to really help teams think through those as we get into these gray spaces of making decisions and making trade-offs and thinking about how we continue to conduct research ethically in these times. There's also an advisory component so that all get pulled in as well. Um, but it's really a constellation of internal stakeholders that are working very closely. And then you've got all the on the ground personnel where that research is actually happening that you're communicating with and talking with. And you can imagine from their perspective, we heard a lot of this feedback. They're doing clinical trials for many different companies. So one thing we thought a lot about was as companies was, can we at least be better about trying to be more consistent? as we work with clinical sites so that we're not all asking them to do six different things to achieve the same goal. So that was an interesting learning as well in kind of taking that perspective from the other side in addition to our side as manufacturer. I mean, if we take this apart and just imagine what is going on, the complexity seems almost overwhelming. And from, let's say, the hospital side and the researchers, the, the site investigators, so many staff, like during the recent pandemic, are repurposed. And so, you know, you may be engaged in XYZ project, but if there's a heavy demand and emergency, and one might imagine it could happen in a natural disaster as well, where staff's diverted, just sitting back and imagining you're on, the complexity actually is, is huge. I'm just curious, though, um, if the study, let's say, or a research program is disrupted and stopped, are there examples of how that starts up again? Or I guess it's a one-up kind of thing, depending upon the protocol. If things are so disruptive or they're partway through and things have to stop, is there some general rule of thumb or you have to start it all over? I don't know. I'm just wondering, is it start at the beginning, rewind? I mean, what, what happens then? And I think, and, and so if I stay, I'll give you a little bit of an operations flair, even though that's not my primary expertise, but I can give you some of my experience from that. And then um, I can tell you that what we think about is this was especially relevant. And I kind of want to go back to your prior observation about the disruption and how that happens in the repurposing, because that was a real big impact during the pandemic, of course, when you had frontline health care workers diverted to critical covid treatments. You had um, hospitals shutting down to only those life-threatening surgeries, which might not have been clinical trials for certain medical devices. So you had, we had people waiting for months to have a knee replacement because that wasn't deemed life-threatening. And so there were, there were real impacts. And you raise an interesting question in the second part of that of then what happens? Can you, how do you continue it? Can you pause it or do you have to stop it? And, and like you said, almost start over. So I think we, we saw a range of different things happening. Um, first of all is, can you continue safely? And that was the first one of like, instead of stopping or slowing down or uh, impacting the ability to conduct it, can you continue it? Can you continue it a little bit more slowly, but still continuing it? Can you find other ways to do follow-up visits? Can you use telehealth to have a follow-up appointment? Interestingly, in medical devices, that was difficult because like if you have an implanted knee or a replacement, you might need to actually palpate the, the limb to see how things are going. You can't do that through telehealth. 
So in thinking about the decisions, though, in general, it usually would depend, I think, on the extent to the disruption. So you can imagine that the pandemic where we had global disruptions, you might have had to stop studies. Um, and most protocols have built in scenarios that are going to consider what happens if something can't continue and if something's so disrupted or you can't get all the data and follow up visits. But in general, you're going to see if you can continue. Maybe you can pause it. Where it's a little bit more challenging is when you have something like the conflict in Ukraine or when there's such climatic devastation that you have really significant impacts to infrastructure and you you don't even have a hospital to go to. So then we go into, you do a lot of triaging. Can you get the participants to do a different clinical site? Can they, we had patients who were transitioning and fleeing to Poland and then finding clinical research sites in Poland that we helped facilitate, even just moving away from Kiev to another city helped for a while. So I think we go through a lot of steps to try to help participants remain in the study if we can keep it open before we would then start assessing if they need to discontinue as an individual or if the study is just not possible to continue. To my knowledge, we didn't have, and I, I won't quote numbers, but my, my recollection is that we didn't have as much stoppage as we did more slowing down, not meeting timelines, finding other options for that. I was picking up on, I mean, again, the complexity is mind-boggling, um, and you're realizing we're dealing with individuals, right? At the right. tail end of all the people engaged, you've got someone who's also perhaps, well, traumatized by all, you know, whatever the cause, it causes incredible trauma. And I just was wondering that if research protocol or trial is stopped, and yet the participants seem to be gaining benefits from the trial, and it has to stop, is there a general rule for providing access, if possible, to the next best option? It's a great question. And I think it's even, so maybe I'll take a step back and answer it from the even non-disrupted times. So let's say it will then probably depend on why it's being stopped. So let's say we have a clinical trial that is stopped because let's do an easy one. There's a safety signal. Something's wrong. It's not safe to take the medicine, the benefit risk. It's not favorable. That one's easier because then, yes, you look to transition them to local standard of care. They exit the trial. That drug's not moving on. It's trickier, though, to your point that you made about, let's say, when people are in the clinical trial, they're benefiting, and now the trial can't continue or they can't continue? Yes, you're right. There is that assessment of if they can't continue in the trials as an individual, is that product that's being studied available in the market where they are? So let's say it's already on the market for one thing. They're in a trial to study something else. Can we transition them to that local commercial supply so that they then have a more stable access to a commercially available product? If it's not even on the market for anything, it's still investigational, then yes, and the trial can cannot continue and there's no legal way, no legal pathway to get them investigational medicine, then are there local treatments that they could be transitioned to? Okay, wow. Thank you. Um, it sounds like a lot of care is being given. And on an international basis, are there other organizations that companies like yours work with? You did mention that there's this sense of this cooperation agreement, if you will, between companies to you know streamline things, make them you know cooperate in times of external stress. So, but are there global organizations that help at all? Exactly. There really are. And so the pharma industry in general, we have 
trade associations where we come together and talk about different aligned priorities and objectives in a non-competitive way. There also, for example, in the bioethics space, um, there are a handful of different places where people can get together. So there's a, a forum that was created years ago by Lilly that is still around that brings together people who have roles like mine to talk about, um, again, in a non-competitive way, the ethical challenges that we're facing in R&D. And a lot of really fruitful discussions come from that, and there can be knowledge sharing. One of the things that happened both during the pandemic and the conflict in Ukraine was multi-stakeholder conversations in an organization called the Drug Information Association, or DIA. It's a nonprofit organization that brings people together in a non-competitive way across all different regulators, scientists, industry. And um, a colleague of mine, Lindsay McNair, and I founded a bioethics community with DIA. So we fielded a lot of multi-stakeholder, multi-function kinds of conversations around Ukraine and the pandemic. There are also other organizations like the Bioethics Collaborative at Harvard Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center that supports these. So there are communities and groups where a lot of different stakeholders and companies can come together and talk about how are you responding to this? Where are the challenges you're seeing? And especially with this particular topic, we found those incredibly useful because of the reason I mentioned also with the pandemic in Ukraine can we as manufacturers try to do a better job of engaging with sites in a more consistent way during those times of disruption so it's not so difficult? And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the health authorities. Of course, we talk a lot, especially in the some of the disruptions of regulatory flexibility and different things like that. I think it's so important that you just outline these things. Pharma tends to, you know, it's the big beast that gets attacked first. And it seems like it's, you know, there, easy to attack. And yet, I'm so glad you brought this up because there's so much work going on that behind the scenes, like you're talking about these organizations where people or companies are cooperating amongst themselves with each other for the benefit, really and truly, of people. Patients. Yes, I truly, that's the first I've learned of it. And it certainly bears more sunlight being shined on it because there are so many good things that happen in pharma, so many. And this is certainly one where work is clearly being done. People of good intention, good intellect, ethically straight people who want good outcomes and making progress and benefiting people. So I'm so glad you mentioned that, Carla. Well, thank you for asking. And I don't ever want to be an apologist for industry and all institutions can benefit from scrutiny and critique, but I I do appreciate the opportunity to highlight some of the things we actually do get right and do well and, and that it is really what we're thinking of when we're making choices. Great. It's real. I was enlightening, actually. Now, here comes the big question, future proofing. Could you tell us what that is about and maybe give us some examples? Sure. And and this is when I think we continue to wrestle with. So when we talk about future proofing, how we had been discussing it in these various different groups was what were the lessons we learned from the various disruptions? What were the pain points we felt? And were there ways to change things to make them different the next time a disruption happened? So for example, one thing, and this is where I think bringing ethics into it directly as well, of thinking about the informed consent form. There are, well, first of all, they're incredible 
incredibly long and complicated, but there are some key provisions that talk about things like what happens if you can't get in for a visit or what might we tell you or some of the really good questions you raised about what happens if it stops and things. And do we have to amend the protocol or amend the ICF for these things? And so giving a little bit of flexibility to operate during times of disruption, which without having to go through an administrative amendment, because that takes a lot of time. So what were those things that we could maybe contemplate, like telemedicine visits, direct shipping products to patients at their homes? Could we build those things in? So if that happened, we wouldn't have to do an amendment to be able to ship drug to someone's home. So those types of very simple things that we could build in up front could save weeks, if not months, of changing those and then having to slow down or stop until we could do that. That's one particular example. J&J has both an innovative medicines and a med tech business. And some of the big pain points from the medical device perspective were what I alluded to earlier. Let's say you'd have a clinical site where a patient had gone to their procedure, but then due to the disruption, they weren't able to get back there, but there might be a doctor in their hometown that they could go to see. And we, we actually talked about this with the FDA a little bit. Could we be flexible around some of the site qualifications in the case of a disruption so that they could have a follow-up visit at an appropriate provider near them if the disruption prevented them from getting back. And that goes again to your question about continuity of research. If they can maintain those follow-up visits with sufficient rigor and quality, that will keep them in the trial, that will keep them compliant with the protocol. So a lot of things like little bits of flexibility from getting places, getting drugs to people, thinking about engaging with them for follow-up visits was where we were really looking for that operational flexibility and really trying to be disciplined about not making it so broad and flexible that somebody wouldn't understand what was going to happen. But those types of things were the things we were really thinking about with future proofing. Yeah, and it's a lot of uh... complexity. <laughs> yes, I, it sounds simple. But again, sitting back and thinking this is lots of people in many, many places. Um, I don't know if you'd like to answer this question, but would you like to share any travel experience related to your work? I don't know if you've had to go to places that were experiencing stresses at all. Um, any kind of specific experience? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I don't necessarily travel to clinical sites, but I, I do have, there was an instance that sticks out to me. One of the things I have the privilege of doing that I'm grateful J&J supports is I sit on the board of directors of an organization called FASB, Fellowship at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics. And they do, they teach ethical leadership through the lens of the Holocaust and the perpetrators of the Holocaust. So they do a lot of travel to Germany and Poland. Poland. And I was on a one-week study abroad trip with them in Poland the second or third week after the initial invasion in Ukraine. And it was very interesting. We got to speak with Ukrainian refugees in a particular area of Poland and talking with them and talking with the Polish people. And it was it really brought to life because prior to that, I'd been on some of our business continuity planning crisis management team discussions, but actually being in the region talking to 
people actually affected by the conflict, talking to somebody who was running clinical trials there, who had brought patients into her home so that they could continue their participation. Uh, it wasn't a J&J trial, it was a different company, but that type of commitment, that type of compassion just really brought to life and reminded of me of the humanity and the human side of this, which it's one thing to say in your principles, the first thing we think about is patient safety and people, but then it's another thing to actually be on the ground and meet those people. So it was a really special and important moment that I hang on to. So whenever we're thinking about impacts on people, just to, to have that humanity about it and humanity about thinking and remembering. That is quite significant. And I can imagine it would be impactful for most people, but someone with your background, your focus in bioethics to experience that is really bringing studies, you know, the studies that you've had and coursework you've had, life experience, and bringing it all together. It had to be exceptionally touching and provocative. Yes. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. When I asked the question, I really didn't expect <laughs> a profound answer. I think all of our listeners will appreciate it. But you, I think you make a good point. And, and even during the pandemic, I mean, I, I was finishing the degree, my degree program at Columbia during the pandemic. And it was both a blessing to be actually practicing bioethics in real time in a pandemic. And at the same time, I felt the responsibility. I had, I had family calling me, go, Carl, you're an ethicist. What should we be doing? So anytime I think you ethicist and, and can be in touch with the actual real application of the decisions and the advice you make is a really powerful way of reminding yourself of the implications of the advice we provide. It was so beautifully stated. I actually do not have any other questions for this interview, and I think you wrapped it up so poignantly that if you have anything else you'd like to discuss, please feel free to do so, or otherwise I'm going to thank you very much. This was very enlightening, and uh, I hope other people feel so as well. I would just say that I am grateful for the Voices in Bioethics podcast and the work that is done because I just appreciate the opportunity. I think it's a great forum to allow those of us who are in this space and doing this work an opportunity to share their stories. And I'm just grateful for the opportunity to talk with you, Meryl. This was a lot of fun and I really appreciate it. I feel the same and I'm going to sign off. It's Meryl Selig and I've been speaking with very wonderful Carla Childers, Head of Bioethics-Based Science and Technology Policy at Johnson & Johnson. Thank you so much and I wish you well and your continued work. Thank you, Meryl. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. <laughs>